everyone. Welcome to this mini-series of the Martin Buber Society of Fellows at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. My name is Edith Ben-Ol, and with me today are Anna Gutgaltz and Amit Gvariel. This mini-series is about how money makes the bonds that connect us to other people and how it separates us as well. It's about how money constitutes what is public and what is private. Today is our second episode titled Our House. Anna Gutgaltz is going to talk to us about how medieval individuals work together with institutions like churches in the urban environment of Crusader Jerusalem. The real estate market in Jerusalem is sizzling hot, and everyone seems to be talking about the skyrocketing housing prices. But what was it like in the past? Was Jerusalem, the holy city, but also a city whose history was shaped by violent conquests, such a lucrative location for investment? We can find some answers to these questions through the story of Andreas and Hosanna, a couple who resided in Jerusalem in the beginning of the 12th century. We meet them in a document from 1136, at a point in time in which they were deliberating whether and how to build their home in the city. This was not an easy decision to make back then, shortly after the Crusader conquest of Jerusalem in the summer of 1099. Back then, the city was only beginning to recover after a prolonged period of tumultuous events that swept through the entire region during the 11th century. When the Crusaders took over, they found a city that was weakened by decades of violent conquests, severe earthquakes, and harsh climate conditions. It was depopulated, especially after a large portion of the population was massacred by the Crusaders, its size was diminished, and many of its main edifices and infrastructures needed repair. Despite the religious zeal of the Latin Christian conquerors, who regarded the conquest of Jerusalem as an eschatological event that would foretell the second coming of Christ, many of them left back to Europe soon after the conquest. Attracting new settlers from the West, like Andreas and Osana, was not an easy task not just because of the poor conditions in Jerusalem, but also due to the geopolitical regional instability and frequent and continuous clashes between the Frankish troops and the Muslims. When we first encounter Andreas and Hosanna in 1136, they are granted a license to construct their house in Jerusalem, just outside one of the city's main thoroughfares. As burgesses of the Holy Sepulchre, this license was granted to them by the Latin Patriarch of Jerusalem, who was also head of the church and administered its properties throughout the city. At that time, although the dominion of Jerusalem was divided between the Patriarch and the Frankish, which is another term for Crusader, kings of Jerusalem, it was the Patriarch who was mostly preoccupied with improving conditions in the city and making it fit for its new status as the capital of the Latin Kingdom. Andreas and Osana were probably among the first generation of Frankish settlers in Jerusalem, arriving from different regions in Europe soon after the First Crusade. Considering the difficult conditions in Jerusalem and the entire region, making the dangerous journey and settling in Jerusalem was not an obvious choice. We can assume that people like Andreas and Osana were driven by religious piety or by hopes for a fresh start outside of Europe. People like them came from different regions in Western Europe, regions that correspond with modern-day France, Flanders, Italy, England, Spain, and Germany. Although these people were all Latin Christians, as opposed to other denominations that were already established in Jerusalem at that time, like Greek Orthodox, Jacobites, or Armenians, 
the Frankish community was nevertheless very diverse. This ethno-cultural and religious diversity that today we regard as a positive or even desired feature of modern cities could cause tensions and difficulties in medieval urban environments. These were coupled with additional challenges that faced people like Andreas and Osana, mainly the uncertainty and instability of life in a city like Jerusalem that was impoverished and constantly threatened by the state of war between the Crusaders and the neighboring Muslim polities. Well, until recently, the First Crusade was often perceived as an adventurous endeavor that entailed a promise for a medieval brave new world, we now know that the hardships we have just listed made the settlement of the city and its urban development a challenging task. Andreas and Osana, who already ended up in Jerusalem, were probably very apprehensive about investing what little property they had in the construction of a house which could potentially never be completed. And even if it would, there were no assurances as to how long they would be able to live there. Furthermore, procuring securities and guarantees that would have been easily acquired from relatives or village mates in Europe was impossible in the highly diverse environment of Frankish Jerusalem. As a city whose population was made up of a large contingent of immigrants from many different places, and therefore ties of kinship and community that normally took generations to establish and would provide medieval social safety nets, could not yet take root. The documents from that period reveal some of the greatest concerns of the city's inhabitants, such as, what would happen to my property after I die? Would my children be able to enjoy the fruits of my hard labor? What would happen to my spouse and children when I die? In order to overcome these concerns and provide incentives for potential investors in urban real estate, despite these difficult conditions, the main institutions that operated in Jerusalem at the time, the leading among them being the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, needed to compensate their clientele for the lack of social security. Thus, as clients of the Holy Sepulchre, Andreas and Osana were promised that the rent owed for the property to be paid to the church will stay fixed even if one spouse will die before the other, a risk that was very realistic during that time. Furthermore, they were granted free access to the cistern that belonged to the church and was adjacent to the land plot where the house was to be built. Such access to urban infrastructures, especially those that were critical for life in the city, like water supply, was particularly important in a city like Jerusalem, which often suffered from droughts and difficult climate conditions. Finally, the terms of the contract also stated that the house will be transferred to the full possession of the church after the death of both Andreas and Osana. The couple's story reflects some of the tensions that were inherent to life in medieval Jerusalem under Frankish rule, but also some of the overlapping interests between the city's inhabitants and its ruling institutions. So while this contract assured that Andreas and Osana will have a roof above their heads for their entire lifetime, the church was able to secure a foothold in a section of the city that at least officially was under the king's jurisdiction and was one of Jerusalem's central thoroughfares and commercial hubs. By licensing construction under such terms, the patriarch also stimulated new construction in a city which direly needed renovation, considering its decline in the preceding century. Finally, the clause in the contract that concerns access to the cistern sheds light on the different perception of private and public infrastructures in a medieval city like Frankish Jerusalem. From other documents, we learn that often such access was conditioned by the participation of the residents in repair and maintenance of public infrastructures, like ovens and cisterns. So, 
our own perception of rather strict boundaries between public and private and urban infrastructures seems to have operated very differently in 12th century Jerusalem. Such categories would have been irrelevant in an environment where many of the most basic infrastructures were shared by multiple households but owned by religious institutions. More than anything, the story of Andreas and Osana reflects the creative solutions to the challenges that characterize Jerusalem's urban environment. By granting the inhabitants stakes in urban infrastructures, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre secured their partnership and participation in municipal undertakings. This was particularly important in a period of instability, when risks needed to be mitigated in order to encourage and facilitate urban development. By providing their clientele with social security, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre made possible the transformation of Jerusalem under Frankish rule into a city befitting its status as a capital. So I'm trying to imagine what the city looks like in the Middle Ages, Jerusalem, in this period of trying to um, renew it and change what it's about to make it this center. And you kind of told us the story of one house and the infrastructure around it. And I'm kind of wondering about the rest of the city, the big picture, the roads, um, the buildings for administration. How does Jerusalem kind of change its face and or does it? Um, in that larger picture. So this house that we were talking about is near or on, we're not quite sure, we don't have the exact coordinates, the street that connects three of the city's most important shrines, which are the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which we mentioned, the Temple Mount, and slightly later on, the Tower of David. And these three centers are precisely those symbolic religious but also administrative centers of the city. And they weren't connected in the same way before the Crusader conquest. When the Crusaders arrive, they reintegrate what used to be two separate centers, one of them functioning as the Muslim center and the other as the Christian center, into a single urban space with one coherent symbology that speaks the language of the religious ideals that undergird the crusade and the administrative needs of this newly established capital. When the crusader kings first establish themselves in the mosque uh, of Al-Aqsa and transform it into what they call the Templum Salomonis, they try to use the symbology of the Temple Mount for uh, the construction of this new type of crusader kingship. But later on, they will transfer their residence to the Tower of David which will serve as this administrative center and the newly established royal uh, curia or court. And by doing so, they will transform this route that now for us, when we visit Jerusalem, connects very naturally between these different centers. They will transform it into this uniting axis that makes the space coherent. Anna, I'm so interested in how in looking to secure people's insecurities about what would happen to them after death, the church says, come to me. So the church steps in, right, for networks of neighbors and friends and family, but also it becomes the heir for this property. So these people were not what 
Christians know as religious, right? They were lay people. They were married. But when all is said and done, when they're both dead, the church inherits all of their property. It's like they're being made religious after death. And not even just after death, because we know that one of the strongest means that the church could apply um, for these purposes was the creation of confraternities. And for the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, this is actually a very central thing that it does in 12th century Jerusalem. All these people that are uh, among its clients or within this broader sphere of its clientele are also members of this confraternity, a religious confraternity, where they uh, also participate in religious ceremonies in different parts of the city. And we know that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is actually the first among the different institutions that operate in this region uh, more broadly after the Crusader conquest to do so. As for the question of inheritance, it's actually very interesting because we know that in some cases, in later generations, we do have uh, children that contest these contracts formed between the church and their parents. And they argue against the decision made by their parents when joining those confraternities to just give away their property after they, they, they die, which is also interesting because it tells us how the society transforms from uh, the society that anticipates perhaps this entirely new phase in history into quite, let's say, um, normal intergenerational uh, relationships. Thank you. That's really cool. Thank you for listening. This was the Martin Buber Society of Fellows podcast miniseries. Our editor is Omri Bendol. The sound editor is Tamir Klein. Inbal Kol coordinated the special for the society. Raz Chen Morris is the director of the society. Anna Gutgalt and Amit Gvariau co-hosted with me today. My name is Edith Benol. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>